Hi everybody, my name is Dean Saffron. I'm a commercial and documentary photographer filmmaker. I specialize in human interest stories. You can view my work at deansaffron.com. I also love all furry babies, so I simply had to start a podcast called Furfillment, where each week I will explore a different person's life story and that of their pets. If you want to be on the show or you know a person that should be on the show, please contact us at our Facebook page, Furfillment. Okay, sit back, relax and enjoy. Today's special guest, vet doctor Sheelan Coates, also has numerous other master degrees, one of which we're going to discuss. Sheelan has become an eco-warrior and was recently a guest speaker at the Invivo Planetary Health Conference held in Amsterdam. Sheelan's latest degree, Food, Environment and Sustainability, has made her quite a world specialist. But the interesting thing is that Sheelan was not always an eco-warrior. She started her career as a vet for the mass food production industry in the United States. Quickly after seeing what was going in to the food that we ate, she realised there had to be a better way for us to exist and tread lightly on this planet. So, hello Sheelan and thank you for joining Furfillment. Hi, Safi. Pleasure to be here. Okay. Now, um, you're a country girl. I am. So, can you tell me a little bit about um, what your background was with animals and why you became a vet? Well, I grew up in a town called Eidsvold, which is a few hours northwest of Noosa, where we are not right now. Uh, I was. It was an extensive beef property. And basically, I grew up surrounded by animals, uh, and becoming a vet was the natural thing to become, because in Eidsvold, we didn't, I never really met anyone else who did business things or uh, other things that were at all commercial, and uh, it just became the the first thing that I wrote down on my um, university entrance paper, I guess. And it kind of overlays into what you're a specialist of now, essentially. It it laid the fundamental building blocks for becoming an environmental, food, sustainable, well, goddess, didn't it? (laughs) Yeah, well, once I graduated from VET, I I accepted an internship position at the University of Florida. And in Florida, I was working with um, large large daring operations, and it... it gave me a, a huge insight into the intensive animal industry and something that at the time in Australia wasn't very well well known. We'd feedlotting had started, but certainly not the large intensive dairies. And after a year of seeing what went on in there, I, I basically became very disenfranchised with um, the fu- what I saw to be the potential future of dairy vetting, etc. And so from there, I transitioned um, out of vet via a small animals um i did small animal locums in london and then came back to australia then moved across into the pharmaceutical industry and then did an mba degree and then moved into financial services etc so i um, followed a bit of a varied path but then after that i met my late husband um who was in the natural health industry and meeting alex really um i guess I suppose it brought everything together. Um, the natural health industry made so much sense to me, especially after witnessing what was going on um, 
with our with our food um, by way of dairying and and the production of food, etc. Uh, and uh, then. Okay, well, to interject just really quickly, um, this was one of the main reasons I wanted to get you on because you, you've got so much insight into how to be more sustainable now. But can you elaborate? What kind of things did you see that you, you can say that made you realise that if we're going to help our own health, mass production of dairies was certainly not the way to go? No, not at all. Uh, if you go onto these extensive operations, firstly, these animals don't never see a blade of fresh grass. Really? Yes, they're on mud lots. They're also milked three times a day. And thankfully, it's not, to my understanding, to the same extent in Australia. But basically, they we were in Florida. They were being fed orange pulp, all um, just a lot of waste materials, a lot of things that cows would never naturally eat. So therefore, they had to be fed a lot of antibiotics and other um, other things to stop disease from happening. Also, they um, a lot of different disease conditions manifested as a result of this um, unnatural diet. But what? Okay, now I'm sure that anyone else that's listening to this is going to be as shocked as I am. Why, in goodness names, would you give uh, a beautiful cow? Orange? Like, what's uh, you just explain this to me? What's the mentality behind that? Well, it's cheap, and it's all in the name of profit. Okay, so they don't really care what they feed an animal. That's what your job as uh, the vet is to counterbalance it. But I would have thought that the antibiotics uh, would equate to the same kind of money just feeding these poor animals um, in, in a better way from the start? Or does it still work out much cheaper for them if they just have orange? It still does. The antibiotics act as growth promoters and things like that. Uh, it's Unfortunately, these are all waste products compared to, well, for a start, animal, cattle aren't meant to be eating grain in the first place. So I guess if they're in a feedlot situation, they'd be being fed grain, which is an expensive food source, particularly if you're... Um, well, in, in America, it would be primarily corn as the food source. That's still a cheap food source over there, but then that's covered in Roundup and things. And also you've got a lot of GM corn. So if you are feeding them really good quality organic corn, then that would cost a, mo- cost a mozza. <laughs> <laughs> so it really does come down to their shares and being able to supply mass amount of people with a product. So we're not going to get too much into the line there which is you i'm going to have haters and i'm going to have lovers um with what we're talking about and i accept that but i'm not a scientist so i can't really go into great detail about uh what you've just said but it makes sense to me that then you would go over and start to think well you know this is something we're going to eat let's look at how we can sustain ourselves in a better off the grid kind of way um but before we get into that just tell me a little bit about your vet time because i notice you've got two cats that are floating around here you've got this gorgeous cat moto guzzi which i'm going to have to get a photo of and 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 put so everyone can see it and also we have maserati now i mean what's the italian connection well my late husband was half italian uh for a start but uh, i guess i've always had a thing for italy uh 
the kids and I, I took our children across. I just recently did a master's degree in Italy. So I guess I've got something for Italians. Um, <laughs> and we did have a cat called Ducati, but she sadly passed away. So we had to continue that theme. So when we got another cat and my brother's a vet as well. So he had a stray cat come into his clinic. So that's how we got Moto um, or Moto Guzzi. And then we got another little kitten at the time and he became Maserati, mainly because we couldn't come up with another um, Italian fe male motorbike name at the time. Yes, well, I'm sure I could come up with some like Aprilia and I mean, oh, yeah. we could keep naming them off, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a bit of a bike nut. Um, okay, so whereabouts in Italy? Were you doing some veterinary work there as well or just in London? No, that was only in London. In Italy, I was um, doing a master's in food and sustainability. Okay, so when you were in England and you were working as a vet, how did you jump across and decide, all right, I'm, I've seen what I've seen with the cows, I've been doing uh, small animals, now I'm just going to really follow my passion. And why Italy? Why not come back to Australia and, and do some study here? Is it better over there? I studied in the town where the slow food movement started, so that's the primary reason for going to Italy. And also I wanted my children to learn Italian, um, to discover some of their roots. And obviously um, I'm very interested in community as well, and it, Italians, I guess, do community well. They're, they're, they're head and shoulders above the rest, a lot of the Europeans, um, they have a lot of traditions. They also, I'm interested in traditional cooking methods, pr traditional production methods for food. And so it was, I guess, the best place to go and study that. Uh, yeah, well, I can see that. I mean, looking here, it looks like uh, slow food sort of started, I don't know, I think it was like 1989 or yes, thereabouts. around that time in the late 80s in this little town called Bra in Piemonte or Piedmont. And uh, and that was it was called slow food um, because it was in response to the fast growth of the fast food industry. Ah, because that was that was going to be my next question that I'm sure everyone else was going to ask. But that makes sense because uh, you know at the end of the day we were all hunters and gatherers. And if you go back, and I really don't think there's much of a difference between our genetics now and how we were when we first landed on this planet. Just uh, we're at a really fast pace, but we still biologically think like a caveman. Well, I know I do. Um, so the idea of uh, slow, slowly growing something and maybe living in an area, um, you know, hunting, gathering, and then going back the next season because you know that it's going to be perfect because you've it was for the first time you were there. Um, is that the kind of practice that you think we should look at going back to the pure basics of food? Well, I mean, it's a big subject, food, and I, don't, I think a lot of people don't stop to think about how integral it is to every aspect of our lives, really. Uh, and in Italy, I guess in the course that I did, we, we studied holistic astronomy, which was all the aspects of how food does tie into our lives. And, uh, and I think... For a start, you know, the building of culture, we, usually when you look at the European countries, most of their um, 
cultural aspects really um, centre around food traditions. It also keeps families together. Um, lunches, celebrations are all revolve around food normally. This is where you have conversations where families, you know, I guess you educate your children in, at the table. Um, it's what br just brings people together. And I think it's something that is really lacking in our Australian environment because we have so many different cultures here. We don't have shared food traditions. Whereas in, say, in Italy, in the little town that we're in, the whole town would come together to celebrate certain um, certain food traditions, and, and in each village would celebrate their their specific vegetable or you know this asparagus season or pumpkin season or whatever whatever. Um, but I think this this is what is part of the glue of society, and now that we're we're not we've lost a lot of that, and people are eating um, TV dinners in front of televisions and they're they're on their iPhones and things they're not communicating over food um, they're not thinking about where their food come has come from um, the love that's gone into that food if uh, I think you know if we actually brought back that appreciation for food and also paid more attention to how it was being produced what um, is happening to the animals that are being you know that we're consuming how um, the land is being treated um, from where our, all our vegetables and, and salads come from I think a lot of us would be very shocked if we started to actually look into that because once you start to explore it which I have over the last 20 years now um, it's it's really not it's a very depressing picture and also um, I'm very concerned about what's happening to our planet. Um, a lot of people don't know that we've only got 60 harvests left in in our soils because our um, soil organic matter is rapidly depleting globally because of the way we're producing our food with chemical agriculture, etc. Okay, so I, I didn't know that. Um, so essentially. You're saying that because of the depletion, we've only got like 60 years worth of crops we could do. Are scientists looking at ways of changing that right now? I mean, what, what can they do, in your opinion, to um, allow a lot more time with growing produce? Well, people are looking at it, but that research is largely being ignored because obviously the big chemical companies, the Monsantos of the world, the fertilizer producers, um, they've they've got governments and you know, well, by the balls, basically. Excuse my language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, no, that's but, what uh, cafe also, chats about. Yeah. So, um, but also a lot of farmers are locked into the system because they haven't been shown the more traditional ways. Uh, I think there was a report put out by the UN, um, or actually it might have been in the States, I can't remember, but basically they proved that the smaller, more traditional farming me methods are actually far more efficient at producing food. This involves rotational cropping, um, a lot of mixed enterprise, and this is what peasant, you know, a lot of the glo globally how peasants farm, and that also um, helps to keep recycling things back into the soil versus monoculture um, cropping with chemicals, which basically strip a lot out of the soil, but we're not replenishing what's going on in there. And also these chemical products also kill the, the biome in the soil. And I mean, I'm going to go back to animals just for a split second, because listening to everything you're saying, what effect is that having on the animals that we're producing long term obviously you know they're throwing hormones in an animal it uh, all those things that are 
well, are dangerous to both us and them. And then there's the, the food groups that are growing out of our soil. But what about like the wild animals that also um, eat from the soil in the mean times or interim times? What, what's, what sort of effects is it having on them? Is anyone seeing an effect on those native animals now? Well, the effects are definitely there, and we just, I mean, let's just look at bees. <laughs> they're that, I mean, they're, the, yes. they're little animals, um, and they're being wiped out because of the pesticide use, etc. Um, but, and then you look at the dead zones in, in the sea from all the agricultural runoff, so you can't get fish. I mean, it's killing all the, the um, ocean life as well, and this, you know, in, especially around the States, you've got massive areas where there's no... no um, natural life left in the water etc and then obviously there's the birds i mean the clearing of the land etc um usually to provide to produce either corn or soy to feed animals and feedlots that in itself obviously really affects the local ecosystems um and so you you know there's invariably an effect i mean i don't i can't remember the stats but also you look at the number of I think there's only 10% of the wild animals left in the world compared to, you know, and most of the animals nowadays on this earth are are geared towards feeding us humans, which are cattle, pigs, um, and chickens, et cetera. And so, um, and that's at the expense of the, the wildlife. So... There's How does that make effects. you feel? Like that must be, as an eco warrior, I mean, it must be quite distressing personally uh, for you to uh, witness this when it's basically your thesis of life. It's your journey to make us eat um, better and to be better to the universe, essentially, and the, the ground around us. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, I mean, for me, animals, well, they're the innocents here. And I grew up, you know, I've always loved animals. I love their personalities, their sense of humour. I was very lucky to grow up being able to observe nature um, and also having pet wild animals too just because of um, circumstances. So I think, yeah, as I said, they, they have no part to play in this, yet they are, you know, they're the ones that are suffering. And um, we just have to look at the koalas in, in Australia. I mean, what... In the name of our progress, um, these the, they're cl- going to you know potentially be extinct. Um, it's heartbreaking, and the thing is, we rely on them. They they all play roles in our ecosystems. They're essential for our health as well. Yes. And um, well, um, now I love cats and I love dogs, um, but someone is going to make a comment, no doubt. Um, that if you're into saving the environment, why do you have two cats that can roam freely? What would you, what would you say to that? Look, it's it's one of those, you know, paradox. Well, conundrums really. Uh, we do our best to keep them in at night, and uh, and I feed them very well too, so that they they're not inclined to go out and look for food. Uh, they've become. I mean, as a vet, I don't advocate over fattening animals but just making sure that they've got enough food so that they're not going to um, be inclined to hunt etc and obviously just keeping doing your best to keep them within the confines of your garden i think you've done an incredible job because when we were doing the short film i saw people say you can't train cats 
but you absolutely can because I saw you working with your chooks and, uh, you know, being in a suburbia in Noosa Heads, I love the sound of, of hearing a chook go off in the morning or a, maybe not so much a rooster, but, you know, <laughs> occasionally. And you have trained your cats to literally not be a burden or even look at these animals as something that could be a food source. So I think you've created um, also an example on how we can live together in the environment and make it work for all. So that's good. But let's let's move forward because uh, one of the other main reasons I wanted to talk to Sheila is I'm sitting at this vast house that she has made and every single item in this house was made by uh, the best recyclable um, produce, I suppose, or, or, or timbers materials. or materials. Yeah. There we go. Materials um, you could come across. And that's not cheap, but you did it as an example to show others who just build these huge monstrosities on, on how you can be uh, better for your surrounds. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your house? Yes, well, it's a toxin-free house and I've tried to be as sustainable as possible. Though, um, I mean, there are diff- many different ways to approach sustainability and unfortunately in our current um, paradigm, it's very hard to be completely sustainable because we just don't have access um, to to the materials, etc. But one of the things I've built is... I've specifically aimed for it to be a toxin-free house because most buildings, um, there are a lot of toxins involved in their manufacture um, and then there's continual off-gassing of volatile organic carbons from the paints, from the sealants, from the glues for the the rest of the life of the house. And uh, this is something, my husband passed away from cancer and... uh, I guess I started um, studying this and I set out to produce an optimally healthy house. Um, I also wanted to be as, as off-grid the po- as possible within a suburban environment to show that this is possible and also to be able to produce our own food in the house. So the house is centred around vegetable gardens so that we can actually um, produce our own food and, and, as I say, be as self-sustaining as possible. But also just to inspire people because it is a very beautiful house. I was very lucky to um, find a, an amazing builder who was happy to – He um, he's an artisanal builder. He'd learned to build in the Alps and so he know, knows how to do things with his hands. And this it's a building style that you just don't see these days. But this house will be around forever pretty well because it's been built to last. Um, it's hardwood timbers, stone floors. Um, it's also in a in a style that will never date. It's sort of you know it's I guess reminds people of a French farmhouse. You know, um, I think yeah, it's just um, a house that sits here comfortably. It blends in with the environment. It doesn't make a big statement. It's unassuming but elegant and beautiful in its own way. And one thing I really noticed because uh, what you said before was ingenious, and that is that our food. And it really is the truest thing I've heard for quite some time is that food was essentially something you did with loved ones. And it would be the time I remember when I was a kid and you would sit down and your mother would or father would get home from work and you would listen to their woes and they'd listen to, you know, how you didn't get an A or in my case never got an A, (laughs) but it was around a table. And your house 
is specifically designed for that. You have tables um, that are the focal point in basically every single room. And I thought that was quite a unique point. So that goes back to what you are fundamentally about, and that's bringing health and love into a micro village. And you even called your house, what was the name? Kijiji. Which means? It's Swahili for village. There you go. All right, so... uh, I, I think that you will see the photos of the house and you'll also see her two beautiful furry uh, cats and, and you'll also see the chickens. Um, what else would you like to give advice to people so that they can... I mean, it's a, we've covered a lot and it's a bit overwhelming, really. I mean, I'm sitting here shaking in my shoes, but if if you wanted to break it down to simple, say, three starter points for the listeners to go out and make a difference, not only for themselves, but everyone around them, um, what would you suggest? Oh, that's a good one. Well, for a start, I think, um, I'd say, well, one, don't be afraid of dirt. That's one of the, my house welcomes, it's an inside indoor outdoor house there's a very it's very there's little interface between the outdoor environment and our internal environment but that also goes with animals too I mean I love having animals in the house and I think that they're a part of any environment and there I guess there's a lot of paranoia about things that are dirty but I think that um, I'm all about building my microbiome and I do think, you know, animals are very much a part of that process as well. So pets and also just as far as the social, the the social aspect, I mean, they're such an important aspect of any home environment as well. So whatever pet you have, I think animals will always make you laugh, will always make you feel at home. and then I, I guess the other things I'd say, always consider, you know, your home environment. What is, what's going into it? Because we, most of us just live in a house. We don't stop to think, again, just like our food, how it's been produced, what's go, you know, what's, what's being off-gassed. I, um, we need to start drawing attention to this because, and also just thinking about what chemicals you're using in your home because anything that you can smell is releasing a toxin into the air. Perfumes are releasing toxins into the air. That's contaminating our environment. And even if you might like the smell, etc., or it might make your washing smell good, you have to think that this is also contaminating the environment. And it's it's a bit like smoking. We're all sharing that environment. So, I think um, that's an important thing to be very mindful of. And I mean, that's a that's a great point because I don't know about you. Well, you obviously think about it, but I always uh, see a person walk past, and you'll have this beautiful smell following them, and I never for one second thought that's exactly like the stench, the same toxins, the stench that a someone smoking walks past and you go, oh my goodness, I wouldn't want to kiss that ashtray. I never thought about that. So what kind of environmental um, prod, products should people use? Like let's say someone wants some aftershave because, mm. you know, I'm a good looking rooster. Uh, <laughs> What would you uh, recommend? Well, there's so many organic and natural alternatives. I think um, essential oils are wonderful that are well produced uh, and they're beautiful because they smell of natural ingredients. Um, unfortunately, most of the chemical things are so strongly smelling uh, and just by pu- the nature of them being chemicals that it means that we lose our sense of smell. So I actually 
I avoid peep a lot of people when I'm walking because they smell to me like toxin clouds, <laughs> and and but I think they can't smell them because the trouble is like anything like our salt th- threshold. You know, if you've got these things in your environment all the time, you can't tell you can't smell them. Whereas I've eliminated all those things from our home environment, so you can actually smell the natural wood. You can smell nature, but nature is subtle. The minute you um, introduce natural flavor i mean un, well artificial flavors scents etc it means your body loses the um its sensitivity and then you can't pick up the subtle things so um again there are so many eco and natural products out there it's thankfully the market's growing i i, I couldn't agree more um and now i'm going to start doing that links is gone baby <laughs> yay <laughs> that's fine <laughs> not that i've ever used it all right i lie i'm a linksist was um okay so before i ask you my favorite final question um I'd like to ask you, what differences have you noticed over the 20 years where you've implemented, like you just said for a second, uh, that every time someone walks past, it's like an atomic cloud of toxins to you, which was a very descriptive way of saying it. Um, what other things have you noticed when, since you've changed your life and that we should look out for? Oh, gosh, the list is long. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a top well, three. Even just walking into a supermarket, if I I walk into a supermarket and I think, gosh, you know, ninety five percent of the products in the supermarket are non essential products. They could go. Um, we've got to, and all of those create rubbish. Their their production um, also creates is uses chemicals, creates environmental waste and damage. Uh, I just think we've got to get back to whole foods and and. Um, and the same as and whole products. Um, we've just got to go go back to nature because with the minute we move away from nature, we are destroying nature. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And that brings me to the final question. So it's like I got you to set it up. Um, because this is an animal-based uh, podcast, uh, Furfillment, what would you say animals would like to tell humans... Um, in improving the surrounds and the world? What would they say to us? Well, I guess they, they're happy to eat just natural food. I mean, mind you, we force our dogs and cats to eat all this processed stuff that's really not the best for their health. Um, I think, actually, I look at my cats and think I want to come back as them because they know how to be and how to just appreciate their their natural environment. They're not rushing off everywhere and they know how to meditate and and just appreciate the, the moment and the now, which I think is probably what we all should be doing. I think that's the greatest advice that you could ever give somebody. So on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for actually being on this podcast. Thanks, Safi. It's been an honour. Until next time, this is Furfilment with your host, Dean Saffron. Peace and love, everybody. Peace and love, everybody.